Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Healthcare Services, or ERDs, provides the moral foundation for Catholic healthcare in the United States. Our guest today, Dr. John Berhaney, Director of Institutional Relations for the National Catholic Bioethics Center, offers an overview of this important document. In this podcast, the first in a three-part series, Dr. Berhaney explains the purpose of the ERDs, gives a short history of how they developed, and summarizes the document's six sections. He also addresses the authoritative nature of the ERDs and explains how they help people make ethical decisions in healthcare. Hello, John. Thanks for joining us today. Well, it's great to be on, Joe. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you could start out by telling us a little bit about your background, especially your education and your work. Sure. You know, I, I think uh, just my the, the time of my life and my career have largely fallen into two areas. Uh, a lot of work has been done in academics, uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees in philosophy and theology and healthcare ethics, and I got a PhD in healthcare ethics in 2003, and and taught. I've taught at the high school level in a seminary, and I've been an adjunct professor at several Catholic and secular universities. So a lot of work in academics. Uh, but after my PhD, I really got more into the world of Catholic healthcare or healthcare in general. I spent six years working for a Catholic hospital in Iowa. We were part of a very large Catholic system. Did that for six years. Then I was executive director of the Catholic Medical Association. That's a national association of physicians and healthcare professionals. Uh, I did that for eight years. And uh, I've been at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, where most of my work focuses on Catholic identity and ethics at the organizational level. I'm just finishing up my fourth year here. All right. So our podcast today is uh, it's an overview of the ethical and religious directives. So I was wondering if you could start off by telling us what are the ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care services, or ERDs, as we'll call them. Sure. Uh, the ERDs are a standard and authoritative set of guidelines uh, for Catholic healthcare organizations in the United States. Uh, again, it's sort of consistent and standard. It covers the topics uh, that tend to come up in healthcare in the United States in the late 20th century, early 21st century. And it's, uh, or they are authoritative as well, and essentially provide the minimal standard. One, one way you could look at them is they, they provide, in a way, the minimum standard for what it means to be a Catholic organization offering health care in the United States. And I'd, ar I'd argue, as well, beyond the minimal standards, they provide some real resources. So... Anyway, that's what the ERDs are. Right, you, you kind of answered this question a little bit with your first response, but what's what's the purpose of the ERDs, or, or what are the bishops seeking to accomplish through them? Yeah, they luckily the ERDs state this uh, very clearly in the preamble. Uh, they state two things. I mean, one. Uh, merely putting them together, merely publishing them as a body of bishops of the United States constitutes uh, a kind of a reaffirmation of some of the most important moral teachings of the church that bear on respect for human life, human fertility, human sexuality, uh, the, the, uh, the communal, the organizational elements of providing health care. Just to reaffirm those things uh, would be the first thing. And second, uh, which I did touch on a bit uh, in defining them, it's to provide practical uh, guidance, you know, uh, so that they know either what they should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing. You know, at one point, and, and maybe this has to do with the um, uh, 
with that first purpose of almost just an official statement of affirmation. But in the early 70s, in a time of some turmoil, uh, the bishops really emphasized uh, that the ERDs should be formally adopted as an official statement of policy that was publicly accessible uh, to patients, to doctors, to governments, et cetera, so they would know. So for I'd say for uh, all of those reasons, um, you know, those are those are the goals of the bishops and of having a document like the ERDs. Can you give us a brief history of the ERDs? In other words, when did they begin? When did they start? And, and how did they develop up to the 1990s? Well, Joe, that that's a dangerous question because you know I'm a bit I'm a bit of a history buff. <laughs> I'll rein you in if uh, I have to. Luckily, luckily, we you know it, it's 100 years. Interesting. This is the 100 year anniversary of the controversy that really gave rise to the ERDs because in 1918, the American College of Surgeons was trying to bring some standards, some quality, uh, some ethical integrity to medicine in the United States, and they published an ethical code. And the just formed Catholic Hospital Association, the precursor of today's Catholic Health Association, you know, well, they were hospitals in the United States. So they said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll adopt that code. And that scandalized some people inside and outside of Catholic health care. They said, what, you know, what are you doing? How can you just take somebody else's ethical code? Um, and And so immediately there was some desire and some movement to uh, create something distinctive, you know, something that would uh, witness the distinctive Catholic values, uh, to distinctive Catholic vision in healthcare, And something got put together, it became call, uh, called the Burke Code, because a priest from Detroit, a Father Burke, put it together, and it was published in 1920. So, you know, that the, 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 that's really the origins of the ERDs. Now, the history, very briefly, 1948 was uh, a kind of a banner year, because that was the first time that a set of directives was actually called the Ethical and Religious Directives, and that's where the title comes from. Uh, they were co-published by the Catholic Hospital Association and by what was the Catholic Medical Association uh, at the time in its periodical called the Lineker Quarterly. And I was executive director of the CMA, and it was interesting for me to go back and dig up that old issue and to see the ERDs uh, published there. So uh, that that was a big uh, I would say a big year, and and the Burke Code was very short. I mean, it wouldn't even fill one sheet of paper, and and there was a lot more material, both uh, more directives, but also more just background and resource material for people in in what became known as the Ethical and Religious Directives in 1948. The next stop is 1971, because up to that time, the ERDs were produced mainly by moral theologians, or as a father, Gerald uh, Kelly. He was very influential, and the bishops would tend to endorse the ERDs, or they would approve them for use in their diocese, but, you know, they really were the work of, you know, well, probably more than one moral theologian, but theologians. 1971, the the national body of bishops called the National uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops, they, they took over. They said, we are going to produce the ERDs and issue them as a body of bishops. And of course, that's the precursor to today's United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. That was 1971. And uh, 1994 was probably, uh, we'll make that the last train stop on the tour here. So after, <laughs> after uh, you know, about 20 years, of course, they were working on the revision already in the late 80s, but there was a significant revision in 1994. And uh, since then, there have been some tweaks. Maybe we can talk about them. But, uh, you know, anyway, from from not being around and causing a scandal to, to reaching a pretty developed form in 1994, that's the history. So why, what was particularly important about this 1994 revision? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of things had changed uh, in healthcare, uh, you know, in, in U.S. society, of course, medical technology. Um, 
a lot of things had happened. And I would say up to 1994, the ERDs had a, a certain character, if you will. Um, really, they were a set of very short directives, mostly not exclusively, but mostly focused on the don'ts, things you shouldn't do. Uh, so there was that. There was a, maybe a short little preamble, um, but there was that. The The focus was largely uh, surgical issues, I would say largely, but not exclusively. Um, and and there were, you know, the, the amount varied. Of course, it grew over time from maybe 12 to 15 to maybe 40-ish. What happens in 1994, uh, I think, is... They they changed the entire structure of the ERDs. There almost used to be a, either a two or four part structure, and there would be some general norms, and then there'd be some surgical norms, surgical norms dealing with respect for human life, then dealing with fertility. It was it was pretty focused. Uh, now what they wanted to do was they wanted to expand that structure, and so they went from a maximum of four parts to a six part structure. And uh, that gave them, I would say, uh, almost a tapestry or almost a canvas, if you will, to say to say more things and probably to take up uh, new topics. And that was certainly part of it. One thing they wanted to do uh, in the ERDs was more than have just directives. And of course, there, there still are. Uh, we're now up into the 70s. But uh, they wanted to provide more of an explanation uh, of the church's moral vision, not only for the ethical, you know, not only for the directives themselves, but for whole areas of health care, the social dimension of offering health care, the spiritual and pastoral uh, needs in health care, uh, clinical issues, beginning of life issues, end of life issues. Uh, it gives them a chance to um, to provide more sort of background. Uh, an explanation just to sort of uh, set what's going to come by way of guidance into perspective. And of course, uh, they they were able to take up new topics. So uh, artificial reproductive technologies uh, was not an issue uh, before. Of course, um, uh, the the first uh, test tube baby, uh, Louise, uh, Brown was only born in 1978, so of course 1971 directives would not have covered that. Uh, so they were able to take up things like artificial reproductive technologies and uh, a topic about collaboration or partnerships in healthcare. So now they have six parts, and um, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about them, but uh, they were able to add. Uh, not only new topics, like I said, like reproductive technology, but a whole new developing field in healthcare, these collaborative relationships. Since then, um, really, you'd have to say most of the directives have stayed the same. Uh, there have been three partial revisions in which the bishops have gone back, uh, and two of those times, in 2001, and just most recently here in 2018, they really looked at Part 6, and we're going to talk about those things a little later. And then in the year 2009, they really only changed one directive number, ERD number 58, which had to do with the issue of nutrition and hydration, including what's called assisted nutrition and hydration for people in states of unconsciousness, uh, or who have uh, dementia, who can't feed themselves, uh, and ERD 58 dealt with, uh, you know, the moral obligations to provide and what kind of considerations would make providing even so basic a thing as nutrition and hydration optional. So, and with all those changes, like I said, the 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 basic structure and and most of the directives themselves, and of course the the introductions haven't changed. All right, so let's shift our discussion a little bit and talk about the specific sections of the ERDs, just kind of run through parts one through six very quickly. So part one is titled The Social Responsibility of Catholic Healthcare Services. What are the bishops teaching in this section? 
Really what you get in there are two major topics, I would say. One is um, the social dimension of Catholic health care uh, as a communal work of the church, as a public work of the church that takes place in society, um, care for the poor in particular, so you get that uh, communal, social, uh, and, and care for the poor elements. And then you also get some very important topics addressed that relate to uh, organizational elements in Catholic health care. So, uh, for example, the responsibilities of the employees uh, and doctors who practice at Catholic uh, hospitals or facilities to follow uh, the teachings of the ERDs. So these are some of the most important topics that you would find in part one. I would say, again, social and organizational. And there are nine different directives that you know, march through a number of topics that would fall under this general umbrella. What do the bishops emphasize in part two? which is titled The Pastoral and Spiritual Responsibility of Catholic Healthcare. Yes, and this is um, certainly, I would say, pastoral care in healthcare has been a distinguishing feature of Catholic healthcare right for the beginning. I mean, when we think that our term hospital has its roots in an older term, hospice, um, you know, that element of care, uh, and of course, including care for the very, the very sick uh, or injured and dying, uh, pastoral care has been a key part of that. So there has always been a great amount of attention paid to not only the care of patients, but to the administration of the sacraments in the healthcare setting, uh, the Eucharist, of course, and viaticum at the end of life anointing of the sick, penance, you name it, baptism, uh, very important, uh, always been a focus and certainly continues to be a focus here in the ERDs. And then, of course, because many things have changed, uh, there, there have been, I mean, they're not new anymore, but beginning in 1994, there was a greater focus given to ecumenism in healthcare, um, working with clergy in uh or pastors, I should say, or ministers uh, from other faiths um, in helping them to serve their own patients, uh, meeting the needs of all patients uh, in the Catholic health care facility. So that certainly uh, has been a focus. Uh, chaplaincy itself has developed as a kind of a profession, and, and they address the need for appropriate education and formation of chaplains. And finally, um, the role of the bishop in appointing uh, someone to lead uh, that pastoral care department or that, that spiritual care division, you know, the role of the bishop in that. So, yeah, those kinds of topics. Moving on to part three. So part three focuses on and is titled the patient-professional relationship. What are the what are the most important aspects of this section? Well, you know, I would um, I, I I'd frame it uh, this way, and there there's actually a whole story even just within the title of that, the professional patient relationship. Uh, maybe in the first draft, it was called the physician patient relationship, and that's. That's a term I continued to hear a lot when I worked at the Catholic Medical Association, but they they very intentionally called it the professional patient relationship because what they were acknowledging and really upholding was uh, the fact that care of patients today really involves a, a team of people who, whether they are, are nurses, they're techs, of course, various kinds of physicians and, and helpers, it's a team of persons. It's a team of professionals. So that's in there. And that really, you know, when you just say, well, what's in it? The introduction uh, is really tries to make that point that healthcare is above all about personal relationships. And it's not just about one of the people involved in that, the physician. It's about the team of professionals. And uh, so that's there. The other way I would characterize what is in there is uh, I sometimes think of it as uh, there really is a section on uh, 
care at the beginning of life, and there's a section about care at the end of life, and of course a whole set of things that tends to come up in those areas. But th this is just a, a full range of issues of, of things that come up in between. So uh, there's everything from recognizing and, and calling uh, for honoring the dignity of the human person. Then you get into some standard topics like informed consent, and there are a few directives devoted to that, but even before informed consent, you get what was in 1994 a pretty new topic, and that was the topic of advanced directives. Uh, the Patient Self-Determination Act, which uh, mandates that when a patient comes to a hospital, that the hospital must ask if they have a directive, an advanced directive, and then must uh, get it onto the medical record, sort of make it known. That was passed in 1990, so that's covered, and uh, how Catholic institutions should deal with advanced directives, that's covered in there. Uh, organ transplantation uh, from living donors, uh, transplantation, which of course is probably more common from uh, deceased persons, is covered in Part 5. Um, the need to respect uh, the integrity of the human body uh, is covered there. Uh, experimentation in medicine, the issue of ordinary and extraordinary means, like how hard do we have to work to preserve human life? That's going to come back again in Part 5, but it's introduced. Uh, and then recognizing and properly reporting abuse, a uh, newer topic, responding to victims of sexual assault. That's ERD 36. That's a, a complex topic in itself. And finally, the topic of ethics committees, which uh, really became a thing uh, pretty much in the 1980s and 90s. And so that's covered in there. So like I say, there are many different kinds of topics uh, all kinds of issues that fall between the beginning and end of life. Yeah, and as you speak, I, I'm I, I'm wondering. We need to, to. We could have entire podcasts on on specific directives. I'm, I'm thinking particularly Directive 36 on on uh, responses and treatments for for victims of sexual assault. It's uh, plenty of work yeah. for the future. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, part four is titled "Issues in Care at the Beginning of Life," and again, what's what are the what's the bishop's overall message in this section? And a little different question: which um, which directives in this section do you believe are most, shall we say, under attack by our culture today? Well, uh, <laughs> when you get into beginning <laughs> there, of life, there's a loaded issues, question. I, uh, yeah, I, I hate to say it's it's almost every one, but uh, <laughs> maybe I should say what what is not under attack. You know, there's actually a directive in there, Directive 44, that says a Catholic healthcare institution should provide prenatal, obstetric, and postnatal services in a manner consonant with its mission. So uh, I think everybody still believes in that pretty much. <laughs> now, after that, you know, again, there's, there's very interesting material. I encourage people um, to look at the ERDs in the introductions. And the, the introduction here is, is pretty long. I mean, it's longer than some other sections. It's almost all focused around the topics of marriage, uh, the good of um, human love and of passing on human life. Uh, that's what most of that uh, introduction is about. Once you get into the directives themselves, there are actually six directives uh, that deal with the issue of either infertility or assisted reproductive technologies. I think, uh, again, uh, this is because of the time, you know, all that, that whole artificial reproductive uh, industry grew up in the 1980s. And so this was certainly on the minds of the people drafting these. So six directives on that. Then, uh, after prenatal care, which I mentioned, there are four directives uh, that deal with either abortion or, or care uh, for women in very difficult uh, pregnancies, you know, uh, or situations of, of dealing with early human life. Uh, so there's a directive on abortion, on treating a woman, you know, say, for cancer while she's pregnant, uh, on ectopic uh, pregnancies. Um, 
And finally, uh, and this also relates to treating women, uh, induction of labor. So, uh, and these are all not only complex clinically, uh, but ethically uh, as well. There are a couple other directives related to prenatal diagnosis and genetic counseling. And then uh, finally, two more on contraception and direct sterilization. So again, you probably have five major topics covered in that section, all of them complex, you know. And just to talk about the ethics of an area there, an area, you know, it takes some time. Right. Again, many more podcasts to do. So part five focuses on um, issues in care for the seriously ill and dying. So we shift from beginning of life to end of life. Again, uh, which directives in this this section uh, do you believe are most, again, under attack, so to speak, by our culture today? You know, I would say that uh, the Catholic moral tradition is is so deep and so rich, and and this this area of moral reflection is, is one of the best. So there there are a whole series of directives. There is a directive, uh, as I said, on providing nutrition and hydration to people who are not dying. Uh, but who are, are severely compromised. And, and again, it, it could be they were in a terrible accident and, and are in a state of unconsciousness. Uh, there's, there's a big range there, and we don't like to use the term uh, vegetative state, uh, but that's a popular term. Um, or they have dementia. You know, they're conscious. In fact, they might even interact some, but they might have forgotten how to swallow or lost the ability to swallow. So the question has to do with providing nutrition and hydration. This has been developed, this has been debated, I would say, this issue, you know, is providing nutrition and hydration um, a form of life-sustaining treatment? Is it an extraordinary, burdensome form of treatment? Um is offering someone food on a tray uh, a medical act? I actually heard someone say that once. Well, of course it's a medical act. Uh, you know, it came from the hospital cafeteria. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I kid you not. And um, and is it enough? Is it enough if you take a tray up to uh, again a very compromised? patient, but they can't lift the spoon to their mouth. Is it a medical act to pick up the spoon and put it in their mouth if it's done by a healthcare professional? So Directive 58 is, um, you know, when they revised this in 2009, I think the length of the paragraph more than doubled. And that is that is very much, that whole issue is is controversial with most people uh, saying, no, you don't have to provide any form of tube feeding. And some people literally wanting to say, you know, taking someone food on the hospital tray uh, could be viewed as a medical act. Uh, I've heard some Catholic theologians say anytime you provide nutrition and hydration via a tube, by its nature, that is extraordinary. Uh, and therefore, um, not, not, there's no obligation. Um, so anyway, that's a big one. Of course, they cover euthanasia in there. They prescribe euthanasia and assisted suicide. And uh, that's uh, obviously uh, very much, I think you had uh, some podcasts recently on the growing climate uh, uh, or support for euthanasia in the United States and um, and the world, of course, the Western world. Uh, that's in there. There's a, there's a directive on palliative care. It's very important. And in one paragraph provides really a, not just one answer, not just one do, one don't, but really a, a moral perspective for how to approach the range of issues that come up when you're going to try to offer somebody some pain relief. So anyway, those are just some of the numbers. All right. The final section of the ERDs, or part six, was significantly revised in 2018. And our next podcast is going to focus on this section in a lot more detail. But just right now, can you give us a brief overview of what this section addresses? Yes. And... um Essentially, it involves uh, partnerships, it involves close working relationships between Catholic institutions and non-Catholic institutions when it comes to providing health care services. And uh, sometimes they share buildings, sometimes they share employees, um, you know, you name it, and there are many, many uh, complex ways that people can work together. Once you start 
working with people who don't share our faith, uh, who don't share our moral theology and moral teachings, they may be doing things uh, that we think are intrinsically evil, and, and seriously so, and the terms of the relationship may call for some kind of involvement. Um, anyway, and that's what that is about, and I think we'll come back and spend some more time on it later. Let's shift now once again and, and talk about the application of the ERDs. So you mentioned this a little bit before when we were uh, in part one, but to whom do the ERDs apply and how are they authoritative? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, first of all, um, above all, they apply to the leaders of organizations that want to offer health care to the public in the name of the church. So that and that's first and foremost, it applies to those people. So whether it is to um, a certain order of women religious, I, I think they founded more than 90% of the hospitals in the United States, uh, you know, to that order, which has a kind of a governance authority, uh, to the CEO, you know, to the senior leadership team, um, people who are involved in this public act, which is called Catholic, um, and which really is a, a form of, of the church's activity in the world and witness to Jesus Christ, the ERDs apply first and foremost to them. Uh, but the ERDs go on to say that um, other people, just the individual, Catholic doctor, nurse, you name it, uh, can certainly learn from the ERDs because what they do is they distill um, the moral principles of the church and sometimes uh, magisterial teachings themselves. They distill them, they sort of organize them, and they apply them to contemporary healthcare delivery. And I think, you know, uh, at the NCBC, we field calls from all across the country on the full range of ethical topics. And sometimes when I'm trying to explain something to someone, I'll say, you know, go read this part of the ERD. They're struggling with, you know, a parent, a loved one who's dying, and, and they've had, they have some specific questions. I'll say, look, it's just a few pages. It's like three or four pages, double spaced. Read the introduction, read some of the directives. You're going to get the vision, you know, you're going to get the framework, and you're going to get some specific guidance that will help you to understand these things. And uh, I, I think most people really like that. So, um, yeah, they have an official application, but I think that they're more than that. How are they authoritative? Or what's, what's maybe another way of saying that is what's the authoritative nature of the ERDs? Yeah, good question, and and in some respects, uh, a very complex question. Um, I said earlier that since 1971, the ERDs have been issued by the the corporate body, by the National Civil Body of Bishops of the United States, now called the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. That a body does not have magisterial authority. You know, they're not a, a council of bishops in the United States. So, uh, of course, we'd say they come from the bishops, uh, but they don't get their authority from that. They get their authority from the fact that they accurately draw upon and sort of distill, as I said a minute ago, uh, the moral principles recognized in the Catholic moral tradition or specific magisterial teachings that might come out uh, in, a, in an allocution of a pope, in an instruction from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, maybe a teaching of a council. Uh, a lot of those magisterial teachings are going to come uh, from popes or from a congregation like the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So the authority in a real way, it derives from those church teachings. There's a kind of a, there, there's an agreement, really, I would say, too, which, which is binding. And that is, uh, you know, basically Catholic healthcare organizations agree to abide by these. I mean, they, they just agree to do it. And uh, they have a kind of an authority that way, too. 
I just want to touch on this a little bit more because I think a lot of people are under the impression that the the ERDs are authoritative because the U.S. bishops say they're authoritative. But you're saying that that's not the case, that the authority actually comes from, well, from magisterial teachings and how they are, um, you know, they how they are, uh, you know, in line with the greater Catholic healthcare tradition. Just wondering if, if you could say anything more about that in, in terms of uh, who did, does, do the ERDs themselves have to be approved? I guess that's, that would be the next question. Yeah, that, uh, that's a great question. Um, while I, uh, you know, yeah, I, I will say this, do they have to be? I'm not sure. But what I can tell you is traditionally, I guess it's worked two ways. Traditionally, they are sent to Rome, you know, after the bishops complete a draft uh, and and they get it all nailed down. They send it to Rome. They must vote to approve it, but they send it to Rome for review. And typically it's reviewed by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, There might be uh, another congregation that would take a look, but typically they send it. And... um, and I think typically they probably get a letter back that 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 more or less says that there's nothing contrary to the faith or something like that. Now, what has happened, uh, we talked closer to the beginning, the fact that ERDs have been revised. If you count this year, 2018, that's the third time in about 18 years or so. And sometimes they get reviewed because Rome raises a concern. They said, well, we signed off on these in 1995, but we we took another look and we think something has to be fixed. So in that sense, um, do they have to be approved? There's a tradition in a sense of inviting uh, that statement of approval. And then also, if something's wrong, Rome certainly has the authority and really has, has taken the opportunity to come back and say, hey, we see a problem. And do bishops have to promulgate these in their diocese? You know, um, <laughs> it's another good question. <laughs> I think the, uh, do they have to promulgate them? Uh, I think the short answer is no, they don't have to. And I've actually asked a bishop or two, and even someone who's who's been familiar with their implementation over the last 20 years plus, uh, Dr. John Haas, uh, you know, well, how many have done it and how many haven't? And uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. <laughs> Going back to uh, 19... 73, 73 and 74, I think, there was a statement from the Catholic Health Association and from the National Conference of Catholic Bishops urging bishops, encouraging bishops to do it. Uh, because, uh, as I said, it it's a public statement of policy. So if someone were to say, well, the, the patient expected they were just going to get, you know, any procedure here that they could get at the, you know, uh, the secular hospital across the street, you say, no, there is a public statement of policy. You know, there's a, there's a statement of law in a way. The, when a bishop promulgates the ERDs, which I think some have done and, and some haven't, they become what's called particular law in the church, and you'd have to get a canon law expert to tell you what that means. You know, and, and there, you know, it's interesting. There, there are lines of intersecting authority, and I think we'd know from our system of government, sometimes you're going to get something from the courts and you'll get it from the legislature or you get it from some, you know, uh, executive agency or whatever it is. Well, in the church, uh, of course, I, you know, there are moral teachings of the church. There's the, the Pope and the CDF kind of, you know, official teachers, but there's something called canon law too. And canon law uh, articulates the right and the responsibility of, of a Catholic bishop to oversee and to uh, authoritatively shepherd and guide the Catholic ministries in his diocese. So if the ERDs never existed, you know, they're a tool, they're a help. If they didn't exist, canon law would still say that if anybody is going to try to engage in in an apostolic work, some form form of activity or service, and they want to call it Catholic, they need the approval of the bishop, and the bishop really has a duty 
to discern whether what they are doing is consistent with the gospel. So, like I said, the ERDs are probably most bishops do, or they've been promulgated in dioceses. Catholic healthcare organizations pretty much agree to follow them. They're widely recognized and respected. And so all of those things contribute to the air of authority surrounding them. How do the ERDs aid in ethical decision-making? Um, well, that's a, a great question. I would say, um, of course, a lot of the things we deal with in ethics are complex because not only are the, you know, the medical conditions complex, but the options, what they involve are complex. The way the ERDs can help is to help to, uh, because they, they contain moral principles and then authoritative guidance on some things that you should be doing or should not be doing, they can help us to recognize or to notice, take account of some of the most important facts and factors to consider when trying to respect human life, human dignity, human health, all of those things. Now, bioethics, uh, it's been around, it's coming up on 50 years, a few years. Bioethics is not that old, but there's a whole framework out there a lot of people have heard of. It has to do with four principles, autonomy, uh, justice, non-maleficence, and beneficence. And uh, I'm not going to spell those or anything, but uh, <laughs> basically, of course, we all know autonomy. And, you know, so many times the, the first question is, well, what does someone want? You know, and we have to do what people want or we have to do what people demand and the patient's in control and, and things like that. There, and there's a lot of attention on autonomy. But um, that's a very popular framework. It was sort of developed to be independent of any one uh, faith and indeed of religion itself. Well, the ERDs can help because they are going to give us a much richer moral vision and then a much richer uh, sense, uh, a much richer list of moral principles to guide us. And, and ethical reasoning is always inductive and deductive. In other words, you gotta, you have to look at a whole series of considerations about the diagnosis and the prognosis and what the treatment options are and who's making the decision what are the you know the side effects and the consequences and after that you have to in a sense say what's most important uh what would uh constitute an unethical act, um what is the guide's prudence and and the ERDs can help to do that so i would say again uh some clear guidance about do's and don'ts, a richer and deeper set of ethical principles and, and a moral vision uh, that can help to put a lot of things into perspective. Yeah, as you were speaking, I was, uh, the words running through my head were faith seeking understanding. And I, I think that that could apply is very much here. Yeah, yeah no, that's great, uh, a great observation. What's the relationship between the ERDs and either hospital or system policy? And how should a, a healthcare system educate its employees on the ERDs? Well, uh, I think that um, the ERDs uh, represent or contain certainly the minimal standards necessary. So um, one way you could look at them in relationship to hospital policies is to say at at any time when some of the issues come up in hospital policies, the ERDs should provide guidance on what a hospital should be doing and shouldn't be doing. They're indispensable guidance and they, they should be taken into account. Now hospitals, there's a lot of uh, drivers of um, hospital policy and do's and don'ts. There's everything from federal law. I mentioned the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990. Of course, sometimes you have federal cases and people say, aha, you know, there's precedent from a Supreme Court case. There, there can be state law uh, on issues. Uh, there's regulatory law. Some of this comes out of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, there are regulations that come out of an accrediting body. 
uh, called the Joint Commission, which accredits hospitals across the board for sort of safety and quality and competence and, and all these things. So there are a lot of authorities that are guiding hospitals and Catholic hospitals. And um, I would say, again, the ERDs should be an essential part of uh, the guidance uh, for behaviors or procedures or any of those things. Uh, and it's, it's certainly foreseeable that hospitals are going to be checking off a whole other series of boxes about, you know, again, what they, what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing. So, um, that'd be the first thing. And the second thing, uh, how should a health system, uh, educate its employees? Yeah. Um, I, I would, I'm just going to say there are probably at least two ways, uh, they should. There, again, there's kind of a, a minimal, uh, basic level at which everybody should be educated. And then, uh, some people more than others based on their roles in uh, healthcare delivery. Everyone who, who works at, uh, works for, works at a Catholic healthcare organization must abide by the ethical and religious directives. That's actually said, um, twice in part one, and it comes up again, there's a reference to it in the introduction to part three. Uh, and there are more references to the fact that, you know, when people have things like advanced directives, uh, you can follow them so long as they don't contradict the teachings of the church. So anyone who works there should know that this set of guidelines exists, and they should know they have an obligation to follow it, and they need that minimal level of education to be aware of, of what they are, uh, where they'd find them, what their obligations are, where to go if they have a question, you name it. I would hope as part of that minimal level of education that they are also taught what what a valuable resource they are. And again, beyond the do's and don'ts, they're a resource for the, for the moral vision of the church. And, um, and then, you know, employees get reminded of the, the most basic things like where the fire escape is and washing their hands. You know, Joe, you've been in healthcare. They, you get reminded of lots of things every year. And uh, it's almost like getting on a plane and they say, oh, okay, you know, this is your, you know, the, the flotation device is under your seat and, and oxygen. Well, you know, we all in a sense get tired of that. And yet if there's ever an emergency, I think We'd all wish we paid a little more attention. I think people need to be reminded at a certain level. And then if you have people like doctors, uh, people who are employed by the Catholic healthcare organization, nurses who are working in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit, the birthing center, there are people who are who are touching human life, health, dignity at the beginning of life, at the end of life. Yeah, in a clinic setting, you name it. And the people who are doing more uh, and who have greater responsibility probably need greater education. What final words of wisdom do you have for us today? You know, I think I'd say in conclusion that um, I've touched on this. I, it's so easy uh, to to view the directives um, almost in a checkbox way. You know, in fact, I've even seen the approach where people say, well, there are so many authorities we have, again, state law and joint commission um, standards and then uh, regulations from the federal government about so many things. And boy, you know, if we don't follow those things, we might get sued, we might get investigated, we might get fined, we might get sent to jail. I mean, we really need to pay attention to that. And, and those are at the top of our uh, consciousness and radar screen. The ethical and religious directives, well, you know, you know they talk about informed consent. Um, they talk about declaration of death, but I, I think there's a tendency to say, well, the really important stuff about informed consent comes from law, you know, or, or public policy. And, um, and to say, well, where, where is the Catholic teaching totally unique? And, and not covered by our other major authorities. Okay, it's going to be in care for human fertility and, and sometimes care at the beginning of end of life. Okay, well, 
then we'll take out the ERDs, and the most important thing we can do is not violate them, so let's make sure we don't violate the ERDs. I and mean, that's a possible course of action. And what I would like to emphasize is um, I think they should be viewed as an integral part of how an organization defines itself. Uh, I think, sure, they have a bunch of directives about do's and don'ts, but there's a great line in um, – ERD number one, I'll see if I can pull it out really quickly. It has to do with, um, again, the guidance they provide and how they should be viewed. And it says a Catholic institutional health care service is a community that provides health care to those in need of it. This service must be animated by the gospel of Jesus Christ and guided by the moral tradition of the church. So animated, you know, the, the place should live in the spirit of Christ. And I, I would encourage people to see the ERDs as a very valuable tool which articulates what that looks like uh, in all those uh, introductions I mentioned and which provides uh, a very useful um, guide to what it means to do that in daily life, again, in contemporary, very complex, very technological, very expensive healthcare delivery. So I hope they're viewed positively, uh, and, I, and I think they should be used to, um, to make Catholic healthcare a distinctive service. John Berhaney, thank you for an excellent, excellent podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Great to be on. This concludes our first podcast on the ethical and religious directives. In our next interview, Dr. Berhaney addresses the 2018 revision to Part 6 of the ERDs. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to support them and the National Catholic Bioethics Center as a whole, please click the Donate button on our website. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.